I don't know whether you checked up on what the subject for this morning was before you came, but in fact it's two subjects. Silence, only promises left is the main title, but then the promises of Jesus through the Old Testament. Now, you could come to two conclusions as to what my scripture reference should be for the morning. If it's silence, that is the period between the Old and the New Testaments, when there were no scriptures written, have I got no scripture reference on which I can base what I'm to say? Or, if it's the promise of Jesus through the Old Testament, does my reading start at Genesis 1-1 and end at the end of Malachi? So, a bit of a dilemma there. The problem is compounded because, to my mind, there are two topics. There's the silence topic and there's the promises topic. And so, um, I didn't feel that I could combine them into one sermon, so, lucky you, you've got two sermons this morning. Uh, One's more pastoral, the other one a bit more of a challenge, maybe, but don't worry, my aim, and given that we're talking about promises, this is an aim and not a promise, but my aim is for both to be done and dusted in not much more than half an hour, but as I say, that's not a promise. I was talking to someone about a bit of news that I'd had recently, and they said, is God saying anything to you through this? Is God saying anything to you through this? And, well, I have to admit that I hadn't even thought that that was a possibility. So what about God speaking to us? Does he speak through the ups and downs of our lives? More particularly, given the subject of silence, what about the silence of God. Is God silent for us, for you, for me? Are there times when we don't hear God? There was a period um, of over 400 years between the Old and the New Testaments, the, the time when Malachi stopped prophesying, 423 BC, for those who are interested in dates, right through to about AD 26 when John the Baptizer began preaching. There was no word from the Lord. No public word to the nation of Judah. Why? Was God no longer interested in his people? Was, had he left them? Had he abandoned them? Well, sometimes we can feel like that. We can feel on our own. God's promised always to be with us through his Holy Spirit. But yet, yeah, what about those times when we feel that he isn't communicating? Are you, perhaps, in one of those times right now? Rest assured, God hasn't abandoned you. He hadn't abandoned the Jews. Um, He hasn't abandoned you. Trust that communication can and will be restored. It might not be quite as easy as just tying two bits of string together, but it can and will be restored. Let's spend a little bit of time thinking about the issue. So, how does God speak? Very shortly after I became a Christian, I was in student digs in Gateshead up in the northeast, and I always did my Bible reading in the evening. And I can remember that it seemed that every day of the week, I opened my Bible and I read the reading, and it was all about in the morning, in the morning, in the morning. God was speaking to me through my reading of His Word. One of the principal ways is by reading his word, but not by pin-sticking. 
they say that there was a man with a problem that he really didn't know how to sort out. And so he said he'd use the Bible to see what to do. So he got his Bible and he flipped it open and he stuck a pin in it to see what he should do. And he actually landed on Matthew 27 and verse 5 which says, and Judas went and hanged himself. (laughs) So he didn't think a lot of that. So he thought he'd have another go. Open the Bible again. Pin in again, Luke 11.33. Then Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. (laughs) That isn't the way to use the... Now, some people do use the Bible as a sort of talisman, but that isn't the way in which we're going to hear God speaking. God can say so much to us, though, as many people are learning this year as they go through soap, say so much to us when we read the Bible prayerfully. There are other ways, they're on the screen, God can speak to us. He can use other Christians. One of the most significant messages that I ever got from God came when the minister came round and said, David, I'm going to tell you what to do. I went and did it, um, but, and that's why I'm here. But um, other Christians can give us God's message. Our conscience can give us God's message. We can know that we're not doing the right thing. That's God speaking to us. Then if we pray about a situation and then let our minds think about it, God can speak to us through our own thoughts. I have to say that very often I spend time lying in bed in the morning, to Marion's great disgust, but uh, I lie in bed in the morning just thinking through things which are problems. And at that time, in a so prayerful, quiet way, the problems, so they don't sort themselves out, but I get an idea of where the answer to the problem might be. So how does God speak those ways? But how might we not hear God speak? Well, if God's principal way of speaking to us is through reading the Bible, if we don't read the Bible, then God's not got much chance of speaking to us. So, answer, read the Bible, and yet they've done some research, the Bible Society did some research, more than half of the people in church today, I'm not saying this church, this is churches all over Britain, but half of the people in churches in Britain today won't open a Bible again until next Sunday. That's bad enough, but the research also showed that a quarter of ministers only read the Bible in the passage that they're going to preach about next Sunday. There are four ordained ministers in Burlington Baptist Church, so which one of us is it? But people don't read the Bible. Um, To hear God speaking, read the Bible. Now, a couple of weeks ago we had the Murdochs, didn't we, in uh, uh, Parliament sort of answering questions and one of the comments that people made one of the words somebody used was willful deafness you know what I mean by willful deafness na 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 can't hear you we can adopt that attitude I hope no one ever does that but it's a possibility so another uh, cause wax in the ear that's one of my difficulties Uh, dirt in spiritual terms sin We might need to deal with some sin in our lives before God's voice can be heard. And as we saw, um, 
with the tin can telephone, sometimes there isn't a communicating link because we haven't actually put our faith in God. If we haven't, then God won't be speaking to us. We need to consider that. If you've never accepted the Lord Jesus as your saviour, is today the day? If that is the case and you want some help on that, do see one of the church leaders and they will be able to help you to find the Lord Jesus for your own personal saviour. Then, one of the reasons sometimes why I don't hear what Mary says to me is that there's other noise going on and that is louder than Mary's nice, quiet, gentle voice. What I ought to be hearing is drowned out by things that I don't need to hear. The busyness of modern life can do that to us spiritually, um, blocking out what God is trying to say. And of course, there's a solution to that. Turn the noise off. Move away from the busyness of life into a quiet place where God can speak to us. And yet, and yet, if we're committed Christians, if there's no unconfessed sin, we've got a clear conscience, wanting to hear God's voice, we can still feel that God is silent. The reason that God was silent for all those years between the Old Testament and the New Testament was that God had said all that he needed to say. He'd made promises that he intended to keep, And he wanted the Jewish nation to be faithful. He wanted the Jewish nation to wait in dependence on him for him to fulfill those promises. Yes, there were things they needed to get right. There were things they needed to keep doing. There were things that had to go on. But for now, God was saying nothing because there was nothing more to say for the time being. They had all they needed in their scriptures. Okay, right the way through the silent period, there were Jews who were faithful in their worship. They were obedient, they were trusting. The the gospel showed that at Jesus' time, there were a good number of people who were true followers of God. But if God is silent, rest assured that he does still care about you. may not be easy, life may be hard. But God still cares about each one of us. The call is to remain faithful, to hang on to God, to hang on to his promises. And don't keep it to yourself if you're in that situation. There are people around who can share our feelings, who will support us in our situations. Is God silent? That question that was asked of me, what is God saying to us in the silence? God loves his people. He listens to them. He never leaves them alone. And we can trust him, even in the silences. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, we pray for those who are feeling that they just don't hear from you. Pray for those who may be here this morning, those may be known to us. Maybe people who, because they don't feel that you're speaking to them, have stopped coming to church. Father, we pray that they will hear your voice, that they will be able to hang on until you do speak to them. 
We pray your blessing on them and on ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. So, promises about Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, Depending on who you ask, there are as as few as 48 prophecies about the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, or as many as 456. Now, Martin Salmon, one of the translators of the Old Testament, um, NIV, has written this. Though many Christians assume that the Old Testament and especially the prophets, contains mainly predictions of a future Messiah, this is far from the case. Even when they do speak about a messianic figure, much remains unclear and mysterious. Martin actually lectured on Old Testament when I was at Spurgeon's College, so I uh, trust him. Um, He lists just eight important prophecies um, that are fulfilled in the New Testament. But promises, prophecies. There's a difference between the two. A prophecy can be a foretelling or a foretelling. Foretelling of what will happen or a foretelling of God's message by a human um, who is God's messenger. That's not a promise. A promise is a direct word from God, um, like the promise to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, where... God said, the woman will get rid of all of your um, power. That's a promise rather than a prophecy. Prophecies, of course, had to mean something to the people who heard them. Otherwise, what was the point of making them? So even if they were mysterious, the prophetic eras included the now, when the prophet was speaking. They included later... That's a bit later, sort of a few reigns later, or the time of the Lord Jesus, and then much later, about the day of the Lord. That's the day when all of God's prophecies and promises will be fulfilled, all of his purposes. And messianic prophecies fall mainly into the later categories rather than the much later one. Now, when we think about prophecy, we usually rush to think about the future what's going to happen. But that wasn't what the prophets were aiming to do. The prophets were aiming to change the behaviour of people now by talking about what the glorious future was going to be. Prophets aimed to change people. Sometimes it's easier to understand prophecy by looking back though. The Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a new King David to rule over Jerusalem. That was the limit of their understanding of what the Old Testament said. But the New Testament writers, when they looked back at the Old Testament, as it were, they were looking through Jesus' life at the Old Testament, and they had a completely different view. They saw that what the Old Testament was talking about wasn't just an earthly king ruling over Jerusalem. The Old Testament was talking about a divine king, a God king, who was going to rule over all of the entire world. But this was going to be a servant king. So what about the Messiah in the Old Testament? The prophets 
they'd got anointed leaders. If you remember back to when we had sermons on King David and King Solomon, they all were anointed as the king of the nation. What the Old Testament prophets did was to develop ideas about these people and transfer them to a future figure who would fulfill God's purposes faithfully, sorry about the lots of Fs, but fulfill God's purposes faithfully without showing the usual flaws of human leaders. Lots of their ideas were based on promises which were in God's covenant with David. But the prophets took them to a higher level, a level that was far, far greater than the capabilities of any Israelite king in the Old Testament. They also had a load of um, messianic-type portraits. There was the suffering servant, which we find in Isaiah. There was the son of man, which we find in Daniel. There was a, a future son of David, which comes all over the place. But the prophets didn't make a clear connection between them. Again, it was only the writers of the New Testament looking through the life of the Lord Jesus dependent on the teaching of the Lord Jesus, they made the necessary connections and made these various portraits all into one person and realised that they were being fulfilled, had been fulfilled, will be fulfilled in one person. Simon, I hope, will, at the right time, look at the Lord Jesus when we go into the New Testament and we'll look at how these prophecies were fulfilled, but that's not for today. But you see, none of the Old Testament writers provides a sort of identical picture of this future Messiah. According to Martin Selman, the, various, the details of the various portrayals are often quite vague. And it, that includes when, how and through whom these prophecies, these promises, might be fulfilled. And the idea of the Messiah is never presented as just, this is someone who is going to be. It's always set in the idea of a messianic age when the anointed leader would bring all of God's intentions for the world to fruition. So, if there's Messiah in the Old Testament and when you look into the reference books and you look at Jesus' prophecies, you're instantly taken to Messiah prophecies as though Jesus... You know, that's the only thing. There are other prophecies. But what about Jesus? Jesus, God's anointed one. And you know, of course, that Messiah and Christ, Messiah is an anglicization of the Hebrew word. Christ is the English version of Christos, the Greek word, so they're the same word. But Jesus didn't emphasize his messianic role. He spoke about being the suffering servant. It's the rest of the New Testament rather than the Lord Jesus that makes it clear that Jesus is the Messiah. As I say, by looking back through the life of Jesus, you could see that he is the Messiah. But he never really made such a claim in strong words for himself, not until the very end of his life. Okay, the reading that we had from Luke's Gospel, which uh, uh, a bit earlier, it mentions anointing. But Jesus actually stopped in the middle of a prophecy about the messianic age, about people who were going through suffering, and he left out the day of vengeance. 
other parts of that prophecy, which are clearly about the day of the Lord, elsewhere the Old Testament refers to it as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus stopped halfway through. But Isaiah 9, the first reading that Frank read for us, according to Martin Selman, verses 6 and 7 are probably the most example, the most important example of a prophecy about the Messiah. Um, It's an example of a prophecy applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't specifically mentioned in the New Testament, of course. Now, Angel Gabriel alluded to it when he told Mary that she was to be the mother of God's chosen one. The Gospel writers talk about the Lord Jesus and they reflect in explaining who Jesus was and what he did. They reflect the promises that are made in Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7. If you turn to that passage, there's a wider prophecy. Starts at verse 1, promises of light, joy and peace. That's in contrast to the uh, gloom, the distress and the darkness of the time when Ahaz was the king. Ahaz, he had no faith in Yahweh. Uh, He encouraged idolatry in the occult. It was a terrible time for the Jews under Ahaz. Ahaz is contrasted with a later king of the house of David in these verses 6 to 7. He's going to reign over all of God's eternal kingdom. It's actually the last in a series of prophecies on children, children who will be specially significant. And the names given to the child draw attention to his special qualities. And unlike the very imperfect Ahaz, the child will have an uh, ideal eternal reign not over just Israel but as we've seen over all of God's kingdom Jesus spoke often about the kingdom of God so that part of the prophecy has been filled in him but it won't come to full fruition until later and then we have that's the posh word for it the intertestamental period you're glad you learned that aren't you But that's the period between the Old and the New Testaments. And we're looking at God's promises today with particular reference to how the Jews reacted to God's voice falling silent for all those hundreds of years. Yes, they had the promises written down, but nothing happened for a generation. And nothing happened for another generation, and another generation, and another generation, and everybody forgot what the prophets had been like. No one could remember the prophets. Sharon was in a children's home. Her mother was allowed to visit her. At first, Sharon would get a message saying, Mum's coming to see you on Saturday. And she'd be all eager. But Mum didn't turn up. And mum almost never turned up. So Sharon got to the point where she'd be told, mum's coming to see you on Saturday, and she would expect nothing. Was that where the Jews had got to? They were told God is with you. They were told God's made these promises, but he hasn't fulfilled them. And they came to expect 
nothing. Did they not believe deep down that he would really carry out his promises? Were those prophecies which were intended to influence their behaviour now no longer affecting the lives of the Jewish people? That may be true. But there is one worse thing that the Jews did. They created a Messiah who fitted their ideas of what they thought God should be doing. They wanted a Messiah with human military might to defeat the Romans. They wanted a real strong soldier with a sword in his hand. They weren't looking for a humble man of peace, which is what they got. Maybe, maybe we can do the same. We can be looking for Jesus to meet our needs rather than looking for the Jesus as he really is. It's a temptation. But that was then, this is now. Maybe interesting to think about that time, 2,000 or more years ago, 2,500 years ago, but it was a long, long time ago. And one preacher in America said, no one except the preacher turns up in church desperately eager to learn what happened to the Jebusites. And I don't think you are desperately keen to hear what happened in the intertestamental period. What can we learn? What can we learn for 2011 from the silence of that period? What can we learn about the promises about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament that will have meaning for you and for me on the 31st of July, 2011, and we'll have some meaning on the 1st of August as well. What I'd like to do is to suggest some similarities between then and now that give us something to ponder, something of a challenge, maybe. What we need to do is to look at one of the key events about the Lord Jesus, the ascension, the end of an era. Think about it, the end of prophecy, when Malachi finally put his pen down, that was um, the end of an era. The ascension, when Jesus went from earth back to heaven, was the end of the era of Jesus' earthly life. And uh, so, take a little look. End of prophecy... And the ascension. Yes, it is big enough to read, thank goodness. Both were the end of an era, and both had promises. Okay? So, the end of Old Testament prophecy, they were promised a Messiah, and that promise has been fulfilled. They were also told about the day of the Lord, when God's kingdom would come in, and that remains unfulfilled. At the ascension, there were promises. Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. That promise was fulfilled not many days later. The Holy Spirit is with us now, indwelling each one of us who believes in the Lord Jesus. That promise has been fulfilled. But there was a second promise made by the men in white as the disciples stood there going, 
This Lord Jesus, who you have seen going into heaven, will come again in the same manner as he went. Or was that effect? The Lord Jesus, said the men, will come again, the second coming. And that is as yet unfulfilled. So we've got a promise, unfulfilled as yet, given at the end of a specific part of God's dealing with the human race. So there's a parallel, can you see, between the unfulfilled promises that the Jews had for over a period of 400 years and ours, except that ours, of course, has been unfulfilled over more than 2,000 years. What happened with the Jews? A generation, a generation, a generation, forgetting, thinking it might not happen. The Old Testament prophets prophesied in order to change behaviour, to change lives. Let's transfer that into the promises that we find in the New Testament. I believe that there is the same intention. The promises that we find in the New Testament are intended to change my life and your life, all of our lives. That's what they're there for. So there are two aspects of our Christian journey that spring to mind. First of all, our daily walk. Our daily life. Our witness. Anybody heard of Brian Souter? Souter? He's the boss of the state... One has. He's the boss of the stagecoach transport business. And he goes to church every Sunday because he says he's a Christian. But he also says, I deliberately exclude any thought of applying Christian morals, Christian teaching, to my business dealings. Because if I did, I would be taken to the cleaners by my colleagues. I don't like that. There is a better version, but maybe... You, like me, know people who leave their faith at home instead of taking it to work. The better example is Ken Costa. He's the head of the Lazard International Bank in London, one of those hated bankers, but he's a Christian. He says, as an investment banker in the city of London, I've read the Financial Times and the Bible almost every day for the last 30 years. People often ask how I reconcile being a banker and a Christian. There's a widespread view that God and business simply don't mix. Well, that's Brian Souter's take on it. But Ken Costa says, I have found that the God who created and sustains the world is also the God of the workplace. If the Christian faith is not relevant in the workplace, it's not relevant at all. He takes his faith to work. And there are many more. Uh, There are people who are heads of um, finance who are Church of England Baptist ministers, Methodist ministers. There are Christians who see that bringing their Christian faith into their work is vitally important and it's something for all of us. The one thing which surprised me, um, when you're researching a sermon, you, you get into little byways 
And one of the byways took me to a chap called John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller, recognise the name? Oil billionaire in America. He was a lifelong believing Christian attending a Baptist church. He taught in the Sunday school. He was also the church treasurer, which must have been quite an interesting thing for a billionaire, but he was a Christian. He saw, he affirmed that business and faith just aren't incompatible. You can be a Christian and a businessman. So, unlike some of the Jews of Jesus' day, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise yet to be fulfilled of Christ's return should encourage us to live out our faith fearlessly in every aspect of life. That's challenge one. Secondly, of course, is the challenge of the second coming. That's secondly, the second coming. Because the second coming will be it. The end. The early church looked forward to the second coming very eagerly. Partly because life for Christians in the Roman Empire was tough. You're likely to be thrown to the light. All sorts of things could happen if you were a Christian in the Roman Empire. So, the end of time was going to be a really welcome relief. Can it please come tomorrow? They really wanted Christ to come again. They prayed for it. They begged for it. But it drove their evangelism. If Christ is going to come again, maybe tomorrow, we've got no time whatsoever to lose to share the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ with everybody. So the second coming drove them to evangelism. The prophecy that Jesus didn't read in Nazareth should have the same sort of effect. See, these days, I said, Promise of the second coming, generation goes, not happened. Generation goes, not happened. A hundred years goes, a thousand years goes, two thousand years goes and it hasn't happened. The expectation can diminish, can be low. It's It's as true today as it was in the first century. People will perish without Christ. So, same motivation. The second coming hasn't, prophecy, promise hasn't been fulfilled yet, but there will be the day of vengeance of our God at some time. The second challenge to our behaviour that stems from promises about the Lord Jesus Christ is the challenge to share our faith. Now that doesn't mean standing on a street corner and shouting, It doesn't mean necessarily talking to somebody. Remember, if you're interviewed by the police as a witness, it's because you have seen something and can talk about it. We are witnesses to the Lord Jesus. Maybe that we can talk about it. But I've forgotten who said it but it's a true statement. Sorry I've forgotten, but... For some people, they don't read the Bible. But they read my life. Because they see 
what kind of a person I am. They know that I'm a Christian and they read my life. They might read your life. And that may be all you need to do in evangelism, just to live a Christian life honestly. It's not difficult. But, as a church, we've got evangelism in our, the core of our being, I'm thankful to say. But uh, the ascension of our Lord Jesus, at his ascension, he said, humans don't need to know God's timing. But what if it is tomorrow at six o'clock in the morning? Let's commit ourselves then, as we think about the promises about Jesus in the Old Testament, about the promises of a glorious time to come. Let's commit ourselves to acting as if God's going to come tomorrow, living lives more aware of God's presence, being bolder in being Christians in the world about us.